You're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD, and this episode is sponsored by Apellis. Here's your host, Dr. Charles Turk. This is Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and joining me to discuss the treatment landscape for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH for short, is Dr. Brian Mulhern, who is a hematology and oncology specialist at Hematology Oncology of Indiana and Ascension St. Vincent Hospital in Indianapolis. Dr. Mulhern, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. To start us off, Dr. Mulhern, what could you tell us about the current treatment landscape for PNH? So we're going to confine our comments to patients with classic hemolytic PNH, meaning PNH not associated with another bone marrow failure syndrome, although there is an element of marrow failure in, in all these patients, we think, or in patients with subclinical PNH clones. So when we're looking at that, there are three approved treatment options. Keep in mind that these do not change the underlying genetic defect. You know, these patients have PNH because they have this acquired somatic mutation of the X-linked pig A gene. This does not change any of that. We're just trying to prevent complement-induced lysis. So there's three options. We have eculizumab, which is IV administered every two weeks. We have ravulizumab, which is IV administered every eight weeks. And we have, we have pegcetacoplan, which is a subcutaneous infusion that patients can do at home. Agulizumab and ravulizumab act more distally or lower in the complements cascade. They inhibit C5. Pegcetacoplan acts more proximally by inhibiting C3. There are distinctions here. If C5 only is inhibited, C3, through the process of tickover, can still deposit on red cells. And C3 is as a potent obstinant. So these Red cells can be phagocytosed by components of the reticular endothelial systems, the liver, spleen, and that's called extravascular hemolysis. C5 inhibition by eculizumab and ravulizumab pretty effectively controls intravascular hemolysis. Patients are going to be kind of differentially sensitive to these. Some patients who are on a C5 inhibitor don't have any significant residual hemolysis or very little residual hemolysis at all, and some have quite a lot. Probably 30 to 40% of patients on C5 inhibitors are going to have some degree of anemia, and some may even be transfusion dependent. How do you pick that, though? How do you know from the beginning you know, which is going to be more effective or route to go or the more, most acceptable route for the patient, keeping in mind the different modes of administration, maybe IV every eight weeks with ravulizumab? being more common versus having patients do subcutaneous infusions twice a week at home. As of right now, we do not have a good answer to that question. So then let's take a closer look at these therapies. How do they compare with one another when it comes to their efficacy? So in terms of control of hemolysis, anything which is going to act upstream of the complement cascade or more proximally is going to be more effective at suppressing hemolysis. If you're looking at the difference between a C3 and C5 inhibitors, one of the questions is, does that matter for all patients? Some patients do extremely well with eculizumab and ravulizumab. So the, the, uh, just to recap, the average age of diagnosis for this disease is around 39. These patients are young adults slash you know, early middle-aged. So they are typically in the workforce. They may have young children. So if they get very fatigued, if they cannot function, if they cannot perform their instrumental activities, daily living is going to have an outsized impact on them and on their communities, on the individuals that they interact with. So some patients do extremely well with eculizumab and ravulizumab, but some do not. Probably around 30 to 40% patients still have some significant anemia despite treatment with C5 inhibitors. That's because we still have C3 being active and depositing on red cell surfaces and serving as a potent oxidant so those red cells can be destroyed in the reticular endothelial system. That's extravascular hemolysis. So we do have another drug which can be used in that setting, pegcetacoplan. It requires a 
administration, which can typically be done at home, twice a week through, as of right now anyway, through an infusion pump. So what is the best way of picking how is one going to, going to respond to one versus the other? We don't have a great way of detecting, making the determination diagnosis, who is going to respond well to one versus the other. There could be compliance issues there. So you're worried that someone is not going to take pegsetacoplan twice a week on a regular basis, probably not receive that drug. They may be better off receiving directly observed therapy, eculizumab or arabulizumab. If there are patient access concerns, copay assistance, those kinds of things, then something which is part of their major medical coverage, like eculizumab or ravulizumab, may be a better option. Although many of these patients are younger, and so they are less likely to be on Medicare. So most of these are going to be eligible for manufacturer subsidized copay assistance and things of that nature. I guess it's very difficult to know which one right now, we've got these three options, which one is the best one to use when someone is first diagnosed. Now, if someone is on a C5 inhibitor and does not respond well, still has significant residual symptoms, we have level one evidence to show that pegacetacoplan is the better drug in those cases from the Pegasus trial, which shows significant improvement in anemia and improvement in quality of life, et cetera, in those settings. It's more difficult to determine is how do you pick at diagnosis who's going to respond to which drug the best. And how about their safety? What toxicities or side effects should we watch out for? So all three approved complement inhibitors, pegacetacoplan, rabulizumab, and eculizumab are broadly similar. One would be obvious, their administration reaction. So eculizumab and rabulizumab, there's a rare chance for having infusion reactions. That is not very, very common, though. It can happen. You're not going to have the same type of a reaction with pegacetacoplan since it's administered subcutaneously twice a week through a home and through an infusion pump. But people can have injection site reactions to that in Pegasus and Prince, for example, probably around 30, 30, 40% of patients had infusion reactions to pegacetacoplan, but they were typically mild to moderate and actually typically tend to go away or to significantly improve after the first few periods of use as patients become more comfortable using it. Aside from that, many of the reactions are quite similar. There's a risk for infection that is comparable to both. There's black box warnings for risk for infection from encapsulated bacteria. So before patients start, they must be vaccinated against strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, and then the two di broad different serogroups of Neisseria meningitidis. But that is common to all of these drugs. And there are specific ACIP protocols that have been established that are available for vaccination requirements for these patients. One maybe theoretical concern was, well, if you're inhibiting the complement cascade more proximately like C3, for example, are you going to be at risk for some longer, so for some additional immunodeficiencies, some longer term effects? Again, the only drug that's proved right now in that setting is pegacetacoplan, but there are many others on the way. As of right now, we have not seen any evidence of that. The infection risk seems to be comparable between them. There aren't any cases of infections with encapsulated bacteria that have been reported so far in the Pegasus or Prince trials, you know, for example. So as of right now, Really, these seen in terms of side effects, these seem to have far more similarities than differences, minus their different routes of administration, IV versus sub Q at home. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Project Oncology on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Charles Turk. I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Mulhern about the current PNH treatment landscape. And what more could you tell us about patient access considerations that we should keep in mind when it comes to prescribing these therapies? So a few things. Number one, these therapies have to be taken indefinitely. Again, assuming we're thinking only of kind of classic hemolytic PNH, and they're not going to be able to stop. The PNH clone is still going to be there, and they will still hemolyze if the therapy is stopped. For whatever reason, the therapy might be stopped because the patient doesn't take it, because of insurance access issues, et cetera. So that's number one. It's indefinite. Number two, these therapies are very expensive. They all cost more than $450,000 a year. So access can sometimes be a challenge. 
That being said, most of these patients are younger. So they are typically in the upper 30s or 40s when they're diagnosed. And so they are eligible for most of the assistance programs that the manufacturers have available. Aculizumab and rabulizumab are administered in the office. They're part of their major medical coverage. If patients were Medicare age, we would call that Medicare Part B. Pexidacoplan can be administered at home, typically is administered at home by the patient as part of their prescription drug benefit. If they had Medicare, we would call that Part D. So there could be cases where one person's insurance plan may prefer one versus the other. That being said, the manufacturers have multiple assistance mechanisms to ensure that patients are able to get the therapy that they need. I cannot recall a time where I was not able to get a patient on some type of therapy. If they have PNH, classic PNH, and they need a complement inhibitor, keep trying. One way or another, the patient will be able to get on therapy. It might just take a little bit of doing. And as we end our discussion today, Dr. Mulhern, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? This is, again, an ultra-rare disease, and we cannot change the underlying mechanism. These patients have a somatic mutation in PIG-A, and so these are complement inhibitors. We aren't changing the underlying problem. That being said, we can give patients, hopefully, a normal life expectancy with a very good quality of life so long as they get the appropriate therapy and the appropriate therapy that works best for them and for their own circumstances. That's number one. And then number two, stay tuned. There's lots and lots and lots of new drugs which are in development for this disease. Right now, the main question is between C5 and C3 inhibitors, but it's going to get much more complicated in the future as we have other drugs which are becoming available, including some oral drugs. And that brings up a whole host of new questions that we as a community will have to answer. Well, as those final thoughts bring us to the end of today's program, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Brian Mulhern, for joining me to discuss the current treatment options available for PNH. Dr. Mulhern, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Project Oncology was sponsored by Apellis. To access this and other episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com slash projectoncology, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.